Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Juliet Fun, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here. We're talking about your book, A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Business, and Do Your Best Work. Juliet, why did you want to take the time for other people to, to take more time out of their lives <laughs> to be better? The, the problems I've seen in 20 years of corporate witnessing are intense. There's a lot of tolerated misery in the world of work. And I spent about 10 years speaking and consulting, and then about 10 years running a company to solve the problems of busyness and overload. And, and I'm really, really moved by the people that we meet in this work. I'm moved by their inability to touch meaning. I'm moved by their chronic overloaded busyness that gets in the way of enjoyment and their home lives and their sense of wellness at work. And, um, you know, what, there's a lot of stories in the book about people like this, but I just throw out one Mindy who we call the peanut butter manager. And we call her that because she has decided that in her busyness, that lunch seems foolish and wasteful. And so she works with a jar of peanut butter on her desk. So her blood sugar can keep up through the day. And there's people like Pete who was a guy, this is a fascinating guy. He actually trained EMTs in what they call stress inoculation exercises to prepare EMTs for life and death situations. But even with his protected nature, when a big company bought his little one, he was overloaded. He started getting emails at 11 o'clock and he ended up in the ER with trouble breathing from stress. And there are people like this everywhere woven into the fabric of work that just deserve to just take a minute to think or to breathe or to step back. And that is the mission of this book. So I'm going to love for you to share a lot of different stories. I would love to share more about the research. And then as we always like to do here on the uh, Leader Chat podcast is really get tactical about how some people mm. take some of your learnings. But, you know, one of my reflections as I was looking through the book is um, you would think with work from home that we'd reclaim a little bit more of our life. But what I hear, what I feel for myself, what I see from my coworkers and my friends we're even busier now than we ever were. Are, are you seeing that as well? It is a fascinating split. There is part of me that's seeing, there are stories that are coming in of people who have learned that their day can have a little more space in it. And <clears throat> there's a lot of stories of people who have gone just the opposite direction. And I think there are so many forces underneath the emotions of the pandemic, the anxiety, the uncertainty, a lot of that has just turned into a giant arrow pointing back to, if you keep busy enough with low value stuff, you won't feel any of this. And so more emails, more meetings, more cramming. And I think some of it is just a way of channeling our 
our energy and our anxiety. And to be honest, at this point, our boredom, we, we've all finished Netflix at this point. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, work becomes a little more interesting than whatever, whatever else we can come up with. The problem is that we're now writing new norms that will have to be purposefully unwritten when we go back to offices. And that is not going to be so easy to unwrite that new 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Zoomaholic schedule that we've acquiesced to. The other problem that's related, and I thought this was so fascinating, this came from an HR guy at a healthcare company we work with, work comes from leaders. Leaders' job often is to be assigning work. So you take two hours of commuting off of every leader in the world, that's two hours more assigning that they have time to do every single day. And so the trickle down of that increased work has been part of the new recipe and it's been very problematic. I remember early on in the pandemic where um, we didn't have that personal connection and, and, and the Zooms and really getting to become an expert at Zooms became kind of a welcome uh, connection moment. Um, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's, that's, that's shifted so much in the last year plus to where when I've got Zooms back to back to back, I almost need a half a day to recover from, you know, from mm-hmm. that sort of connection time. What, what are you seeing with that in terms of just creating where people aren't having the opportunity to create kind of this empty space to recharge? I'm a recharge guy. I'm a very extroverted guy, but yeah. if I don't recharge, I, I, I get blown out. Well, let's let's give that question some context and then dig down into the answer. Yeah. Let's go let's go way up, which is with the foundational metaphor of this book and of the instruction that we're about to give, which is that of building a fire. If you build a fire, you have to have the right ingredients, you have to have good dry wood and maybe some crumpled newspaper, but there is one critical ingredient that if you forget it will prevent your fire from ever igniting and that is space. It is the space in between anything combustible that fire cannot live without. And so that foundational metaphor of the fact that we are the same, that our work is the same, that we need space to to think and ponder and mull and recuperate, that is that's the the end the goalpost that we're heading toward a day with space and that space is not only to recuperate you mentioned that you like to give yourself the chance to do that but that's only 25% in our teaching of why space is necessary in the workday there's also creative time there's what we call reductive time, which is time to get junk out of the way. And there's also the constructive space where that is where we hatch the great ideas that change business. So with the foundational understanding that we must have oxygen in our system in order for our spark to ignite, we then look at the back-to-back zooms and we realize that the problem with this is that there is no space. And, and what's funny is we call the space white space because of in in the coaching days, I used to look at an executive's calendar. And if there was sufficient white, literal white space on the paper, that meant that that day held extra possibility. So we can begin just there with looking at the simple calendar white and understanding that there's one rule you can follow in Zoom that changes everything, which is never let the colors touch. If you have slices of literal white in between 
all of a sudden you're, you have a baby, baby kind of training wheels experience of putting that space into your day. And you can think about the last meeting and you can prepare for the next meeting and you can be human and maybe realize that you're hungry or you need to hit the restroom without sneaking and all these wonderful things happen. And so that that's just a really accessible place to start, go through your calendar and make sure that none of the colors are touching. And from there we can take, take next steps. I think back to, you know, whenever I, I connect with my partner and she asked, how, how, how was my day? And, and the days where I'm most productive, which usually means the more, you know, in the weeds, getting, you know, the checklist mm-hmm. done are my least fulfilling. So I, I told that totally resonates with me because it's the creative parts of it. It's part where you can, you can dream a little bit. You can focus on, on things that are outside of the box, or you can look at clients in different ways. Um, when you're just checking the box and you're doing that for eight hours and you're on back-to-back zooms, it really does. It depletes you. You, you talk about the, the false God of busyness. And I, I love that because um, you know, Scott Blanchard, he has a thing to say, we're not busy, we're just in demand. And so mm. what is it about, you know, us feeling like we've got to either look busy, be busy, or say that we're busy, or are we just busier than ever? We're, we're craving busyness as an answer to what feels like our responsibilities at work. We feel like we have to, Juliet B. Shore, who's in the book, calls it performative busyness, this sense of there's almost a play going on where we're showing off to, we don't even know who anymore, the activity of our day, and we're confusing activity with productivity, So in that confusion, we reach for a quantity of activities, more checkboxes, more inbox activity, but we're we're missing completely a definition of productivity that's more important. Now, conversely, if you and I sat in a conference room all day long and we didn't really get up and we just sat in front of legal pads and we looked out a window and we thought, but then at five o'clock, one of us had a spectacular game-changing idea. That would have been a very productive day, but it would not at all have been an active day. And so unwinding this lust for busyness happens when we begin to just understand that we're looking to the wrong the wrong goal often with productivity. In In my world and at my desk, I have a definition of productivity that works for me. It is, have I made anything better, bigger, or more beautiful in the course of my work? And if I can look at a before-after moment from the morning to the afternoon that something, anything got better, bigger, or more beautiful, then I have been productive. I have produced something of value. But most people, they work all day long. They get to the end of the day and they look up and they say, I don't even know what I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that, that definitely resonates with me. What are some, some ways that, that you found that, that people can be more deliberate about making space so they can, you know, have those wonderful goals of, of better and, and beautiful and, and, uh, and, and have really feel like they've, they've done more for the day. Yes. We need to begin by the idea of having a practice that brings white space into our life. And the way that you summon it is to take a strategic pause. When you practice taking a pause, white space appears and all these possibilities that we've been talking about become 
uh, at your fingertips. And the easiest way to begin is with a tool called the wedge. The wedge, if you could see my fingertips, they're pointing upward in a triangle. Just imagine a little wedge of open time that is inserted in between two activities of the day to open them up and uncompress them. This is activities that would have previously been connected. So this could be between, as we discussed, a meeting and a meeting. It could be between a question and a response. It could be between you're getting an idea and you're taking an action on that idea, these little wedges, and they can be little. That's one of the biggest misconceptions of white spaces. It has to be significant amount of time. 10 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds begins to oxygenate and open up that space. And then the day begins to have a different experience where there's lucidity and intention in between our touch points. And so we can actually think, what's the highest value thing that I should pick up next instead of giving into this hallucinated urgency all around us and just grabbing whatever is the next thing on the list? How do you deliberately look at your day and your weeks and your months? How do you strategize that where you, you can actually call out the times and the places, whether it's meetings or internal discussions that, that are working against you, that, uh, that are not allowing you to be your best? How do you, how do you kind of identify those? And, and is it a purge? Is it just a redirect? What do you typically do with that when you found some, some ways where um, things are, are not fulfilling you, they're dragging you down? Yeah. It's so different at different levels in an organization. So I know you have a wide leadership in terms of their agency at work. Let's kind of talk from the middle outward. The core idea is that we have too many items that are low value and not enough that are high value. And we, we've seen this in our research. We, we research our clients before we do initiatives with them. We ask them about low value tasks in certain categories, emails, meetings, reporting, interruptions, and a few others. And when we quantify it, we see that people in teams waste about $1 million annually for every 50 employees on low value work. So it's about a third of the time that we're seeing people are finding work that they feel that they're neither really contributing nor benefiting. They're simply acting. And that's the problem. To combat this, we need to create a new filter and we call it a reductive mindset. Um, you'll notice that the word reductive has other meanings, but here we're talking about the mathematical sense where we are stripping away, asking where can we let go, cut delegate, eliminate, shrink in scope, postpone. We have to realize that work is not a pie-eating contest and that we don't always just get points for quantity. And that becomes an individual effort. It can ideally become a team and organizational effort. If you try on those glasses of the reductive mindset together, that, that can be incredibly, incredibly powerful. But there must be this stripping away, and, and never before is it more necessary than now. As we know, Bloomberg says the workday is now two and a half hours longer than it was before. Meetings have more than doubled. There's 40 billion extra emails per month than there were pre-pandemic. So never before. I think, has this filter been critical uh, as it is today? And with all that extra pressure, all that extra time, um, you've got a lot of issues with 
everyone needing everything right away. And, and I, I yes. find this interesting because typically in the work that I do, um, when I'm not doing the podcast, I'm out with clients. Well, I haven't been out with clients since February of 2020. Um, now I can meet with them pretty, pretty, you know, pretty routinely versus having a meeting three weeks from now. So you've got mm-hmm. that urgency where you can serve your clients in a better way, but then internally you've got this urgency of everybody is available. Nobody's on the road. People want things from you. Now, how do you kind of hit the pause button on everything taking top priority? How do you understand what you should really focus on and also pull back a little bit on, on the speed? Yes. We, I used the phrase, but let's make it a, let's make it a thing. Now we call it hallucinated urgency and it is hallucinated. It is taking the impression of urgency from all around us and applying it evenly to all tasks. And as you pointed out in your depiction there, it's a terrible thing for prioritization because no one knows what to touch first. So from, from the most basic level, managers need to understand what we call spotlighting, which is, I think a lot of times managers and leaders underestimate the confusion Imagine a person on your team, they're sitting alone at their work from home desk, you've given them 13 things in the week. You may think that it's intuitive for them to feel just kind of have a feeling sense of which of those 13 is the most important or the most urgent, but often they do not. So managers either verbally or on documents need to take a gigantic spotlight and shine it on the one, two, or three things that are the most urgent. They need to verbally say that these are the two things that have a time sensitivity to them and others can wait. Otherwise, no one understands what you feel. They don't, they don't have a sense of it unless you tell them. Then teams should adopt some language. We, we talk about this in the book a lot. I believe there's really three levels of urgency. And if you learn these three levels and then you start using it as common language in in a team, wonderful adjustments can happen. The three levels are things can be time not time sensitive. That is true. Sometimes things are just not time sensitive. Then things can be tactically time sensitive. And that's the That's the one where we pay attention, where speed to action is actually tied to a business result. But then the big catch-all that we need to learn about is things can also be emotionally time-sensitive. And that just means something in us, some anxiety, curiosity, hyperactivity (laughs) is making it feel like things are urgent. But actually, if we were Spock and we had no emotion at play, they are not urgent. And so teams can start to say to each other, I don't know, is this feel, is this just emotionally time sensitive? Is it tactically time sensitive? Is it not time sensitive? And you combine those two things, managers being more directive and some common language about urgency, and you'll see it go down pretty quickly, actually. We've got about a little bit less than 10 minutes here. It's the time we really want to start to, to how we can kind of mechanize some of the things that you've mm. talked about. And, and what I like is you, you, you hit on before I, before I became aware of, of your book, the things that I was thinking over what you really hammer on here, which is about email, which is about, you know, how teams communicate better about how meetings can be more efficient uh, about how to create new team norms about how to have more work-life balance. So I don't want to cover all of those because we got to have a people, <laughs> give people a reason to, to pick up the book. And it's a fabulous book. Where would you kind of, I wouldn't say rank order these, but what is what is the low-hanging fruit that one of our listeners, our listeners could could take from our conversation today and say, you know what, I could focus on this right now and I could do a better job. Where would you take us? Sure. 
Because it's Blanchard, I would take us first to the heart. And I would say that the, the thing to keep in mind is that busyness, yes, it's robbing us of efficiency, it's robbing us of effectiveness, but it's also robbing us of the ability to be kind and relaxed and humane and of service to other people. And so if you need a motivation that is beyond the financial or beyond the logistical, remember that people who listen to this podcast care about a team having a certain visceral experience of work, that it should be pleasant and sane and humane. And if you don't have oxygen, that is absolutely not possible. So with that as our true north, we would then triage like an emergency room. What are the things that are standing in the way of that relaxed humane cadence. And I, obviously the two are emails and meetings. So I'm, I'll play a fun little game with you and you pick. We'll do email or meetings. I don't know if we have time to do both. I'll go with you meetings. Reference? Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah I'll, I'll go with meetings on that. And, and I, I think I've got some issues with, uh, with emails, uh, but the meetings I think are, are touching me more where some of them are energizing, some of them are not energizing, they're draining. And I'm not always sure why. Yeah. It's because we have no idea how to be purposeful about planning them. There's a story in the book about this guy named Devin. He's a leader. He has, he's a pretty senior guy. And he sat in a sequence of meetings the day before I met him that is absolutely a perfect portrait of the problem with meetings. He sat in four meetings in one day that were all on the same project pitch. And it was one of these meetings to prepare for the meetings to prepare for the meetings. So he watched the team deliver the same pitch four times in ascending uh, levels of sign off until the fourth meeting, which was the most important. And that was the only one where his presence was needed. In fact, by the time he was in that meeting, he was reciting the pitch. He'd heard it so many times. But that person, even with all of his authority, did not say no to sitting quietly in the back of the first three iterations. And that is because he's like an like a baby elephant who was tied to a stake like a, by a little mm. rope and now grows up and thinks that he can't move. It is the fear and lack of norming around opting out of meetings that is a gigantic part of the problem. So where we start in the meetings, first of all, we just have to create a little breathing room. So that's the first rule is never let the colors touch. And if you go through your calendar, which probably now looks like a game of Tetris that you just won, you want to just open up five, 10, 15 minutes in between each meeting. Inside of that slice, if I was going to break down the juiciness of that slice, there's basically three things that happen. You look backward, you look within, and you look forward. So the first piece of the break is look at the meeting you just finished. How'd you do? What'd you learn? Do you need to put in a note? In the middle, look within. How are you? Are you hungry? Are you tired? Do you need to exhale? Look forward. What's coming up? What's the next meeting? Who's the human being? How do I want to be uniquely different with them than I was with another person? And so now there starts to be a little space. Then we want to learn two different techniques that I think I have time to teach you. The first one is using boredom as a divining rod to decide when we're in the right meeting. Because when we're bored, what happens in a meeting, now boredom is off, I, I will also have to say sometimes work is just boring and that's part of work, but sometimes it's a clue. And what happens is for most people, they get bored and they begin to digitally multitask. And that multitasking mutes the boredom, it makes it go away and they never get its message. 
But if you don't multitask, you'll notice that you're sitting in meetings where you feel really bored. And the question to ask yourself is, am I either contributing or benefiting to this meeting? If I'm not, what I want you to do, I want you to practice this, is just say inside your head, SBH, which stands for shouldn't be here. Mm. SBH. And as you do this over any period of time, even a couple of weeks, SBH, SBH, you're going to hear a vocalization in your own head of the fact that you are using your professional time incorrectly. And that SBH awareness is going to start building within you and it's going to start moving you to action and start asking you what to do about it. Should you opt out? Should you send a sub? Should you not be there in the first place? We have to move to a place where people can say no without enormous fear. And teams can share their SBH awarenesses. You may find that all of us are saying SBH in the same meeting, and then that meeting has to be questioned. So that's probably a simple version of of how we would start you on a path to saner meetings. And and that no is a scary thing. You might need uh, what we call a no-buddy where you pick a partner and you rehearse it. Maybe you have to even script language of how you're going to opt out. It's not always the easiest thing to do. But as teams share this permission, you will see more white space appear on the calendar. And that unlocks the door for everything else that we've been talking about. We're talking with Juliet Funt, the author of A Minute to Thank. And, and Juliet, I'm certainly glad that you're here. So I hope you feel like you should be here. And our listeners are very <laughs> happy that you're here as well. Thank you. As we uh, start to wrap up our time, I always like to, to pose this question. You know, if there's one thing that you want our listeners to, to take for, take away from our conversation, you know, what would that be? Hmm. I think permission. The, 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 we were editing this book, and when you edit a book, you look for repeated words. Sometimes an author has a word they love, and they say spectacular 17 times, and you have to cut it out. And we found out that the word permission was 31 times in the book. Hmm. And and then we said, no, we need. We probably need 31 more. This is what we need is just somebody loving to reach through the Zoom and say, you have permission. You are not a robot. You have permission to breathe, think, craft an idea before you talk about it. If you can give yourself permission, and then maybe if you're a manager and a leader and you can model both tacitly and overtly giving others permission, this could all really start to change. I love that. Thank you so much for for being a part of this. If if people wanted to dig a little bit deep into all the things you do, where would you send them? Yeah, they'll go to julietfunt.com. And at that website, they can also take a test called the busyness test, and it will help them crystallize their unique issues amidst everything we've been talking about, figure out what is stealing their time and how they can regain that space. I love that. And and before we started to record, I hope it's not putting you on the spot too much, but you had had some, shared some great uh, uh, comments about Ken. And as you know, he'll, he'll be on with us in just a oh. second to, to share his thoughts, but uh, I would love one of your memories or, or one of the learnings that, that you got from Ken in your development. Oh, it, oh Ken, I, I just, I just wish that I, one of the greatest dreams for my parallel universe second life would be to work in a, in a place like you, where I would just get to see that human being over and over and over and over the happiness, the optimism that he, it isn't even anything he's taught me. It's just him. He walks in the room and you remember that, that work can feel human and sweet and loving and like a giant hug every day. And 
I could just try on for size his perspective and I would have learned something. I love that. Juliet Fun, thank you so much for being a part of this episode of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. Hey, Chad. Thanks so much for interviewing Julia Funk. I'm a raving fan of hers. I think of all the people I know. She's one of the ones who's really constantly trying to help us all to really be her our best And her latest book, um, A Minute to Think, is just fabulous. And listen to the subtitle again. Reclaim creativity, conquer busyness, and do your best work. And that's where the action is. And she wants to get rid of all of this crazy uh, overwork, doing a lot of useless stuff that doesn't really mean anything that people might pass your way. And one of the ways that I kind of take a look at my life. I look at four areas to make sure I'm getting some good balance there. The first one has to do with intellectually. What am I doing to learn? Uh, So I look at things. Is there learning in here? The second one has to do with physically. What am I doing to take care of my body? And at 82, that's really important. Uh, The third one is spiritually to recognize that I'm not the center of the universe and and uh, that there's something more important and more loving than me that's really in charge. And finally, relationships. You know, who are important in your life and are you spending time with them? And look at your life in relation to those kind of things and tie it in to what Julia says. And boy, what a great combination. So, Julia, you're fabulous. Uh, Chad, you're not bad too, but uh, I think this whole idea of, you know, a minute to think and make sure you're not getting carried away with unimportant stuff. Thank you all. You're the best.